with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful. Uh, just for your presence with us, I am so grateful for this church family and for uh, the opportunity to come and talk about these most sacred things, uh, your crucifixion and your re- resurrection. Our, literally, our life in this life and the next depends on what we're talking about today. So we are, I'm just grateful for the opportunity. I pray that you would give us clarity by your spirit, that you would uh, draw our hearts to your truth and, uh, and give us wisdom how your, how your truth uh, speaks to us and ministers to us today. We ask all of this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so you should have on your table a uh, copy of the Nicene Creed up to the point where we are uh, talking today. So let's, uh, so this is not the whole Nicene Creed, this is just to where we are uh, talking today. Let's, let's recite it together. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is, seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, of one being with the Father. Through Him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, He came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, He was crucified under Pontius Pilate, He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. That is the last four lines. That's where we're talking today. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. Uh, Two weeks ago, uh, we talked about creation and incarnation. That is, Through Him, all things were made. By the power of the Holy Spirit, He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. The Creator creates Himself. The incarnation presents the opportunity for today's topics, which are the crucifixion and the resurrection. We could not have a crucifixion without an incarnate Lord, um, without a person to hang there. Uh, We could not have a resurrection if he had nothing to be resurrected into. And so some people will ask, so what is the, what's the most important, Christmas or Easter? It's, that's, 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 a raw, that's, a, that's a category error. Yeah, those, those there, you can't have uh, one without the other. So you have, uh, in this Nicene Creed, you have this downward trajectory of Jesus, right? You have uh, God from God, and then he creates, and then he is incarnate, and then he is crucified, he suffers death. So there's this downward trajectory. And then, from that bottom of suffering death, resurrection. So we move on, uh, and then we get to ascension and right hand of the Father. So this, this is sort of concave uh, valley shape uh, to, the, to the Nicene Creed. Uh, there are, and I wonder if you look at this and, and think about... Uh, think about this. There are some complaints, those who want to complain about the creed. Note that it does not cover anything about the life of Jesus. It, it jumps right from incarnation to crucifixion. 
And so it does not, in that sense, draw our attention to his affiliation with the margins of society. It does not draw our attention to his teaching. It does not, therefore, conform us or charge us to conform to his ethic. And um, so let me ask you, how, how, how do you feel about that? You good with that or what? Mm, have you thought about that before? Have you noticed that? It's, it's long enough. It's long enough, right? We got plenty. We got plenty. I, 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 I do notice it. I mean, because again, I know, I've read the history of it. Yes. And of course, that's the whole point. Because for some, I mean, the whole point of this was you're agreeing on the framework. And to some extent, the framework of Christ is God and man together. Mm-hmm. And part of the Trinity, and it's all the Trinity is all part of it together, and so those teachings are not that framework. They're within the framework. They're they're the the sort of the the filler, if you will. But it's by God's grace that you know you're you know you're you're saved and all that. So what does it? I mean, I don't say this lightly, but to a certain extent. What does the teaching and conforming to the teaching matter? And I don't mean that in a light way. Well, I just mean it to say that. And, well, I mean, the truth is we are not saved by being like Christ. We're saved right, by Christ. Exactly. By right. That, yeah. That, yeah. Good. You shall Thank you. That's it. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. Josh had his hand up. I, I agree with Carol 100%, but then also from a historical context, was the life and times of Jesus, like his teachings, was that in question, or was his nature in... Right, so that's the... What were they addressing? They were addressing in the Nicene Creed the nature of Jesus. What did he... Uh, who was he? What was he? And what did he come to do? So um, so that is, uh, in a sense, what he came to do was to re- uh, reconcile us to the Father. Right? So that's, um, so that's incarnation, crucifixion, uh, and then resurrection. Uh, His life is incredibly important. Uh, Luke Timothy Johnson, he's a Catholic uh, theologian, says this in response to that claim. He says, it is who Jesus is that makes him the Savior of humanity, not what he did or said. And I I don't think he means what he did or said on the cross. Um, For this reason, moving from Jesus' birth to his death for us, says all the creed needs to say. Um, so it is uh, not that his life isn't important or that we're not called to conform to his ethic, but it's not what saves us. And, uh, and again, it wasn't that he, people were questioning whether or not Jesus, um, like Josh said, you know, raised Lazarus from the dead or changed water to wine. It was, who is he? What is his nature? And what did he accomplish for us by that nature? So... He was both God and man who came for us and for our, our salvation. Um, I, I would even say, like, in terms of the importance of his life, that his life redeems our life. Uh, not just his death, rede- uh, defeating our death, but that his perfect life redeems our sinful life and his perfect teaching redeems our moral errors. It all works in our salvation, but the act itself uh, came on the cross. So, for me personally, just in my faith, as you can, if you have listened to my preaching and teaching over the years, you probably know it's not a big surprise. What draws my attention in our faith is the crucifixion 
and the resurrection. Uh, when I got here, uh, I said, I think it was I said to Beth, Deacon Beth, that uh, I sort of live in Lent all year round. And, uh, and that's because I just, uh, I think that um, confession and uh, crucifixion and is, is the kind of, for me anyway, it's the life of, of Christ. It's the life, the Christian life. Um, and those things do not matter. Crucifixion and resurrection do not matter if he is not both God and man, which is uh, very God of very God, which is uh, Christmas. But that, as we've called it, the hypostatic union between God and man, all that implies is that's not what the, what, what the creed has already talked about. It's not where my heart is easily drawn to. I believe it all. My, when I think about Jesus, it's the cross and the empty tomb. And so I love the opportunity to get to teach uh, this class today. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. Now the creed is crystal clear, right? There was a purpose in his crucifixion. He suffered for our sake. He was crucified for our sake. For our sake, he was crucified. There are several theories of atonement out there. As you read, there's... um, Penal substitutionary atonement. There's uh, Christus Victor. What are some other ones, George? What? Uh, Anselm's. Anselm's. Uh, Anselm. I think Anselm had was was getting towards uh, substitution. The substitutionary atonement. There's others. I probably should have researched them. One, uh, in particular, talks. About, I mean, from from my mind, they're all fine as long as you have substitutionary atonement. Meaning that Jesus took our place. It was we who deserved to be on the cross before God, and Jesus took our place. He substituted uh, that. We'll talk about atonement uh, in just a minute. But there is um, uh, any of the theories out there, they don't, if they don't say that uh, what he allowed to happen to him, he did for us, it was for our sake, then that is, out, if it's not for our sake, that is outside the scope of creedal Christian orthodoxy. Um, there is at least one theory that describes the death of Jesus as accidental. Um, and in the sense, I mean, that it, that wasn't what Jesus was aiming for. It was just the result of the brokenness of the world. And in that theory, it's called the theory of nonviolent atonement. It focuses on the resurrection as God's saving action. So Jesus was crucified because people are broken and sad and misguided and God looked down and said, we can't have this, and resurrected Jesus. Now, I am sure that is an oversimplification of the theory. But it does not, that, that does not account that the crucifixion happened for our sake. It was, it was done by God. He said, Isaiah says he's, he set his face like a flint. He was, and Jesus says, I must go to Jerusalem. And so it was, it was, he was always headed to the cross. In fact, we talk about the transfiguration uh, today. And everything in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke that comes after transfiguration, all headed towards Jerusalem. So we have like building the case that Jesus is the Christ. Peter says, you are the Christ. Transfiguration, if you remember this from our Matthew study, everything after the transfiguration is headed towards the cross. Uh, and in fact, I had um, a great conversation with a friend of mine yesterday uh, he's preaching on the transfiguration today, and I said, he said, what are you preaching about? I said, oh, uh, divinity, authority, particularity. He said, oh, that's, that's great. 
<laughs> and I said, what are you preaching about? He said, that you can't know Jesus without the cross and the resurrection. And I said, huh, where did you get that? And he said, because at the end, he says, don't tell anybody about this until after I have been crucified and resurrected. In other words, it takes the cross and the resurrection to understand what was revealed on the Mount of Transfiguration. It doesn't matter if he was divine and authoritative if he didn't die for our sins. Because then, he, I mean, then, he just, then he's just a regular God, right? We have to sacrifice things to appease him. And, but um, but when, if he becomes, and we're going to talk about atonement, he, became, he was himself the sacrifice. That's, that's different. All right. So, as you can tell, I hope you can tell, I don't ascribe to the theory of nonviolent atonement. I think that it is incredibly gracious of God to give himself violently to his own standards. Um, and, you know, that, that's a theory that doesn't like the fact that God would require that of his, of his son. But the creed recognizes that God had agency in the crucifixion. God had agency. Yes, Jesus suffered. Right? Yes, he was acted upon by persons outside of himself. Yes, he was treated unjustly. But there is a recognition that he had some control of the situation because it happened for our sake. It happened for our sake. So what was it that happened for our sake? Um, what does the word atonement mean? I wrote this in my notes. And it occurred to me that the word atone would be a really good first word in Wordle. So if you're playing Wordle, atone. Got three vowels, T and an N. So you can have a little devotion right there when you're playing Wordle. What does atonement mean? To make amends. To make amends. Right. So if I, um, if I, I mean, hypothetically, obviously, but if I, um, I don't know, use an ugly tone of voice at home with, with my wife, um, I might atone for that by, um, you know, flowers and a... Um, yeah, they, well, that might be propitiation, right? That's a, that's a different thing. But I, I have to atone for my sins. So you're making amends, you're making reparation. And so, um, in, I mean, it's really, I was probably, there's probably plenty of other uses. I mean, is, it, is there, uh, for my lawyers in the room, is, is atonement a, uh, uh, any, there's no talk of atonement in, in, in the law? Yeah. No, it's totally religious. Okay. Um, It's not just saying you're sorry. It's paying the price. That, so, like, that must be if you if you speed and you have to go to court and you pay the fine, you are atoning for that yeah. for that thing. I don't ever remember Give saying it. No, it's not. Yeah, you, but so it's, you can't you can't now. Uh, grace is when the the cop says, "I'm gonna I'm gonna let you off." Right? That's that's grace. You deserve a penalty. I'm giving you a warning. Atonement is paying the penalty. Okay, you're making amends or, or reparation. In Leviticus chapter four through six, which you should read, but you probably won't. Uh, honestly, you really should read it. All lawyers and Christians should read Leviticus. But in particularly in four through six, the system for Sin and guilt offerings, the offerings that we are to make, 
And so there's different offerings for priests and, um, and heads of household and, um, and women and children. There's different things, poor and rich. But ultimately what happens was you bring a bull or a ram or a goat, something that, has, that had value. It wasn't the meat. It's not that God likes the smell of barbecue, right? But, but in, in an agricultural society, bringing a bull and killing it, I mean, you could eat the meat, but then, then you don't have the bull, which means no more calves, you know, unless you have another bull. Um, and so you can have all the cows you want. But uh, so the death of, of, a, of a goat or something like that, and then you're giving up milk. And so there's, there's cost involved to the sinner. But what, this, what you would do, whether it's the priest in, in a different ritual than, than, you know, just come in at the feast of booths or something like that, but you would lay your hand on the animal and then kill it. I read that. I thought it might have been better if the priest laid it, uh, killed the bull and then laid his hand on the head, but, um, but apparently you had to lay your hand on the head of the live bull and then, uh, and then kill it, and I think that's, there's a lot of risk involved with that as well. But what happens is that you have a transfer spiritually or at least um, symbolically, a transfer of, from the sin of the person to the animal, and the animal is the one that suffers death. So the animal is the substitute. Now what happens is you have to do it again next year and the year after that because the blood of bulls and goats cannot, um, uh, cannot cover uh, our sins. Um, but the animal dies, not the sinner. That is a propitiation. It's a sacrifice in order to make amends. Uh, can, we, um, can we think, could, could we think in that system, and I don't think we could in our society, but could we think that they, could they even think that the death of a bull or a goat could equal the death of a person? And the author of Hebrews is really clear about this. So this is a really uh, wonderful technical book in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews. It was, uh, for a long time, people thought it was written by Paul, but almost certainly was not written by Paul. We don't know who wrote it, so we call it, say, the author of Hebrews. Uh, it never claims to be written by Paul. Uh, but the author of Hebrews says, no, that the sacrifice of a, blood, uh, of a bull or a goat or a ram was made perpetually, that is, year after year, and still it was only a shadow of what was to come. And this is Hebrews 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, in other words, what we could do on, uh, on earth in that time before Jesus was just a shadow of what was actually happening in the, in the heavenlies. Um, since the law is but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. In other words, you make the sacrifice, it does not sanctify you. It does not make you perfect. It does not change your heart. It costs you because now you've got to go save up and buy another bull. But it does not change your heart. It does not make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered uh, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. So the sacrifice not only served to symbolically take the sin away as a sort of foreshadowing of what was to come on the cross, but it reminded the people 
every year that they needed sacrifice. Their life required a sacrifice, the death of another. And he says, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Then he says, he does away with the first, that's the um, Levitical practice, in order to establish the second. And by that, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. What the author of Hebrews is saying is that Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice and the final sacrifice. That, that he is certainly a reminder of our need for sacrifice, but you, if your faith is in him, you are sanctified. Like, I want you to try to live a holy life, but before God, you're not going to get any holier than you are because G, he sees Jesus because you're covered in that blood. And that is, that is the, sacrifice, the sacrificial system. That is what had to happen. And uh, so Jesus became our sacrifice. Um, Hebrews says that Jesus is both the priest and the sacrifice. The priest is the one, of course, who offers the sacrifice. He is the priest, the great high priest, and he is the sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He makes the offering. He is the offering. Uh, There's that wonderful hymn, Alleluia, Sing to Jesus. Did we sing that today? Something like it. We sing one like it. But Alleluia, Sing to Jesus. The very last line of Alleluia, Sing to Jesus is, Thou on earth, both priest and victim, in the Eucharistic feast. So he is, uh, he is both the cause and the effect of the sacrifice, both priest and victim. Uh, the nonviolent theory does not, in my mind, account for either Hebrews or Leviticus. Sin, our sin, that we all have, Remember, I mean, I think you know this, but I, when, I, when I talk about sin, it doesn't mean that you're a bad person. It just means that you have, we've all missed the mark. If you don't have sin, then Jesus didn't come for you. Sin is violence against God. And so it takes a loving violence to overcome it. Uh, Philip Carey, who is uh, the author of one of the books I've been using about this, says, um, in Latin, the word for suffering is passus, P-A-S-S-U-S. And that is the word from which we get both passion and passivity or passive. So the passion of Christ, we talk about the passion of Christ coming out in Lent, we'll talk about the passion. That's not his enthusiasm. That's the way we use the word, right? We like, what are you passionate about? God forbid that our world would be talking about suffering like, like this. We're talking about enthusiasm. We're, just, we're talking about goodness and something we're, we're excited for. The passion of Jesus, I mean, I, I guess you could say he was enthusiastic in, in a sense because that's why he came. But it is his suffering. And, and what Kerry points out is that God is impassable. He is unchanging. That's what impassable means. And it's from, obviously, the same root, except it's not passable. He is not, which means he is not passive. He is unchanging. He is always cause and never effect. Nothing can be done to God. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He cannot be acted upon. The church fathers insisted on this. Do you know who the church fathers are? They're like the Tertullian and Origen and some of the scholars in the early, early, like 200s and 300s. And they insisted that God cannot be acted upon. And, and Carrie says, there, there, is, there is the great both and of incarnation. 
There is the great both and of incarnation. Remaining what he was, he took up what he was not. So he remained God. He never ceased being God. The impassable suffers passion because God becomes man. Creator becomes creature. Word becomes flesh. And if we can just stop to think about that, how God, who is unchanging, created himself and became a man and suffered under human judgment, why do we say he suffered under Pontius Pilate? Why throw, why throw that detail in there? Did that make it historical? Yeah. It roots it to a point in time this actually happened. It's not myth. I mean, we have historical evidence that Pontius Pilate was the governor at that time. He's also the symbol of the greatest human power of their time. He was the representative of, of the Roman Empire. That's right. Representative of human power. Mm-hmm. I've also seen it as a way to restate that he was made man. Because if he was not made man, he could have just said, Pontius Pilate, disappear. Go away. I'm not obliterating you all. But that he subjected himself to the physical human side yeah. of, of, of things. There's, there's such, such interesting interaction that we are given the privilege of, of hearing between Pilate and Jesus, and there's a point where Pilate asks him a question and Jesus doesn't answer. If he had answered, Pilate would have had to let him go. And we wouldn't be here. And I just think that is amazing. Um, so Jesus... Uh, took on flesh and, and subjected him to him. This is, this is you know, um, Philippians chapter 2, that he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he uh, took on flesh, becoming human, giving himself even to death on a cross. Um, and it is his sacrifice of himself that sanctifies us permanently. Uh, and now, so not just... Um, Individual sinners, but all sinners. So here's a question. Does the blood of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, sanctify all sinners everywhere? Or just the sinners who repent? All sinners everywhere. All sinners everywhere. Make your case. Well, he came down to to uh, provide a way to uh, to to heaven, uh, whether or not you wish to take it. If you are wish to take it, you can follow along and believe. If you don't, although it was there for you. You haven't accepted it. I think that what I'm saying, talking about repentance, that's what you're describing. So is it is it for everybody, regardless of our action, or is it dependent upon our action in, um, in accepting it? That's the question. And the answer is, yeah, Mike. I was going to say God's grace isn't dependent on what man says. Mm. God's answer isn't dependent upon what man says. You're right. And in retrospect, you and I can all look back and think, I never would have made this choice for God if He hadn't chosen me first. 
But what if somebody doesn't have anything to do with God? Doesn't like Jesus, renounces him. Is that a sin that is covered? Without repentance, there is no forgiveness. Without repentance, there is no forgiveness. Let me just say this. I don't know the answer. (laughs) And I know this. If you have repented, you are in Christ. And if you got a bad, just because of the circumstances of your life, you weren't able to ever see the true Christ, or Christians did something, or people who bore the name of Christian did something terrible to you and, and drove you away, I think, I think God understands that. You never heard the gospel or were told, given a false gospel. I think God understands that. And I don't know. What I know is if you've heard it, repentance is the option. Giving ourselves uh, to Jesus. I don't, I think it is, I think Felix is absolutely right. Anyone, anyone, anyone who takes that gift, doesn't matter where you've been, doesn't matter how many days left you have to live, doesn't matter what you've done, anyone, all sinners can, can, Accept it and receive it. And God is even more gracious than that. So, I don't know. But it's something to ponder. And there's lots of different... Within the scope of orthodoxy, there is a lot of... There's some different opinions about that. Jesus was all the way dead. He was all the way dead. You've been in the room with a dead person before, you've touched them probably. Their skin goes cold and clammy pretty quickly. Um, I always think when I'm in the room with someone who's passed away, it's a, it, with family, it, it is very important for me as the priest to touch the body. Um, to, for the family to see that pastorally. Because, because what is the truth is that that person's not there anymore. I mean, you know, you're, you're not, nobody's ever looked at that. Even when you're in the funeral home and, uh, and, and you say, oh, well, Grandma, she looks pretty good. You know, like, I'm, we, we mo- I've only done two uh, corporal funerals since I've been here. Everybody gets cremated around here. But, but if you're in the funeral home and you see, uh, or at the church, wherever, and, and Grandma didn't get cremated and she, oh, she looks pretty good, you know that's not Grandma. That's, you know, she's not there anymore. Um, Jesus was just that dead all the way dead, buried in the tomb. And on the third day, he rose again. This is, so put in the tomb on Friday. That's the first day. Second day is Saturday. Third day is Sunday. That's Easter. And this is the uniqueness of the Christian claim. If the resurrection didn't happen, then the crucifixion doesn't matter. Um, And the incarnation, probably isn't a thing. It is the resurrection that validates all of it. I'm, it could not have happened with the other two, so I don't want to say it's more important. It, it's, again, that's a category mistake. But we're not saying that Jesus' memory lives on or his teaching still lives on or his spirit rose, but his body didn't. We are saying that, his, that, that death was defeated and Jesus, who was all the way dead, came alive again. Um. The resurrection of the dead is not just life after death. It is the undoing of death. The undoing of death. So he rose on the third day according to the scriptures. Now, I, I have to say, there's not a lot of scriptures. But I think what, what we can look to is Psalm 116. No, sorry, Psalm 16, verse 10, which says, You will not let your Holy One see decay. 
corruption, meaning that your Holy One's body won't be destroyed. And then Jesus himself points to the sign of Jonah, in the, uh, which is essentially a death in the belly of the fish, coughed up onto, uh, onto land. So, um, and I don't have a lot of scriptures beyond that. But it is according to the scriptures. Jesus said, it's, and Jesus is the word of God, that we could make a stretch in that way. But I think when we say according to the scriptures, we're looking at Psalm 16 and the sign of Jonah. So what might be some objections to the idea of resurrection? I mean, maybe not your objections, but what are some objections? How about dead people don't rise? (laughs) That is not scientifically possible. Of course it's not scientifically possible. That's why we're saying it happened. That's, That's why it is so important. One thing, one thing that people might say is that, well, people back in those days were just much more susceptible to myths and to the supernatural. And we know better now that that can't happen. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in the 40s and 50s, addressed that. He called that chronological snobbery. Uh, they knew what dead was. They may not have known how cells were formed. They knew what dead was. Right? And so they knew just as well as you and I do that dead people don't rise. And so it wasn't that some, they came up with a myth, myth and they were just swept away by the uh, idea of it. There is, in fact, uh, as you may know, uh, there have been several people throughout the years who set out uh, as atheists to prove that the resurrection was a myth and became Christians because there was no other explanation than that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, obviously one of the explanations is not that this, is, this can happen to anybody. It can only, it couldn't, and that's why they became Christians, because um, it had to have been the act of, of God upon Jesus. So even if you think that the disciples might have misunderstood death, because they're just common fishermen, after all, what do they know? The Roman guards were in fact professional killers. They knew what, when somebody was dead, and they didn't break his legs on the cross because he was already dead, but just to make sure, what did they do? Pierce his side. And what came out? Blood and water. Now, it probably wasn't H2O. What uh, I am told, I hope to never find out exactly, uh, but, but what I'm told is that after a violent death, car crash or a beating like Jesus took, that the blood begins to separate. And, um, and so when they pierced his side, uh, they probably got into, I believe it was his, uh, his liver, and what would have come out was the separated blood, so there's the dark red and then the, the whatever the, the clear substance is. And so that, that is just very typical of what happens in a violent death. Um, so that's... So that's an, so number one, they knew what dead was. Number two, um, the Romans wouldn't have been fooled into thinking he, just, uh, he was dead when he just swooned. Number three, they actually had no category for an individual resurrection. So the Greeks, what they believed, uh, and, and I mean, Plato and Socrates, they, they got, and Aristotle, they got a lot right. 
And, uh, but what they believed was that the, the soul's great longing and the soul's um, uh, ultimate eternal destiny was to escape the physical world. And so any thought that after death that a soul would come back to the physical world is preposterous. They, they just they had no category for that. Um, and anybody who did come back would be a fool and certainly no one worth worshiping. The Hebrews, on the other hand, did, many of them, did believe in a general resurrection at the end of time. So you have the Sadducees who did not believe in a resurrection, but the Pharisees did believe in a general resurrection at the end of time. But nobody would have thought of a personal, individual uh, resurrection. And in fact, as you can see in the Scriptures, Jesus talks about it Himself. On the third day, I'm going to rise. Nobody had any clue on Easter morning. The women are walking to the tomb grieving. They're expecting to finish the funeral and to, to uh, dress His body up. They're wondering, how are we even going to get in the tomb now that it has been sealed? Because probably the guards aren't going to open it up for us. And they get there, and it's open, and they're like, what happened to the body? No, they, they don't right away say, he rose! We were hoping he would! They are totally confused. And it has to be the angel that appears to them. When the women go back and tell the disciples, with the exception of Peter and John, nobody believes them. Because... I mean, you, the testimony of women was not admissible in court at that time. And so they just thought, oh, they're just like an, you know, it's just, they're just making up tales, these silly women. I mean, listen, if it weren't for, somebody said, if it weren't for women preachers, none of us would be here today, right? Um, because they were the ones who, who proclaimed it first. Um, it is, uh, the, the disciples didn't believe it, the women didn't believe it, and yet within days, Masses of people were worshiping Jesus as the resurrected Lord, as God, because of his resurrection. There's such a dramatic cultural shift um, that it seems completely unlikely unless they saw him walking around. Because they, I mean, you're not going to just, you're not going to sit around a campfire and tell a tale and days later the whole world set on fire unless you see the evidence. Now, we know, even the most skeptical scholars um, know that the tomb was empty. Because if the tomb wasn't empty, then what? They just would have em- just said, look, here's the body. Um, so that's, so there, that's another one. Um, it, what, if, what if the Roman guards just fell asleep and the, um, and the disciples snuck in and got them? What was the punishment for Roman guard for falling asleep on, on the job? Yeah. Death. One, sure. All of them, four or five, falling asleep to the point with such sleep that, that the disciples tiptoe up, move the giant stone away, carry out the body, and none of them wakes up. I think that is, with the penalty, under penalty of death, not very likely, particularly on all these other things. Number six, the eyewitnesses. 
First Corinthians chapter 15 is one of the great uh, treatises in, in the New Testament about the resurrection. It's not an account of the resurrection exactly, but it talks about the importance of resurrection, St. Paul does. Uh, and he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance, he's talking right into the Corinthians, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, and then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. So Paul is saying to the Corinthians, who can easily... Really, pretty easily, get on a boat and go ask for themselves that there are eyewitnesses. He could never have made such a public claim. Instead, he he would have himself faced ridicule and shame. But he he was saying, they're right there. Like we can go ask them. They saw it for themselves. Not just a couple of people who might have gotten together and uh, come up with a story. Five hundred people. Their witnesses are all over the place. So there's eyewitnesses. And then this is the one that means the most to me. I mean, maybe some of these are convincing to you. But the one that means the most to me is is the disciples themselves. Because they were all martyred. Um, Except for John, who was exiled. Uh, He lived in Ephesus, and he got exiled to Patmos, which that's where he had the revelation, um, which we call the book of Revelation, now the Apocalypse of John. Uh, and they would not, you might have one or two that would like take it to their grave. You got 11 men that nobody cracks. Nobody says, all right, all right, all right, we made it up. You just wouldn't die for a lie. Somebody cracks, but nobody did. It's not just 11, there were... I mean, they're the, the main ones. Yeah. Well, well, sure, sure. But in terms of the disciples, were the, they were martyred. And maybe there were other martyrs as well uh, of Jesus' original disciples. I can't speak with authority on that. Sure. They were all martyred, yeah, the, tw- the, the 11. The, the, the 500 or so. Yeah, sure. I mean, he says that some of them are dead. You know, some of them have fallen asleep but uh, of the 500. But So sure. But, um, but the, of the original disciples, somebody says, okay, for crying out loud. We made it up, but nobody did. And that, to me, is the most convincing. And that, to me, is the one that seals. Yes, John? It was also recorded by a non-Christian that walked around here after his death. It was recorded by a non-Christian. A historian. A historian. Are you talking about Josephus? Yes. Yeah. Um, I, I'd have to go back and look. I'm not, I don't really know my Josephus very well, but I think Josephus says uh, that it was... It was cl- he makes note that it was claimed by Christians that he had resurrected um, rather than he saw him for himself. But I'll go back and take a look at that. Nevertheless, it is, to me, obviously, I hope, convincing. And, and this is what I want you to hear from 1 Corinthians. Um, and in fact, the, the entire New Testament was written under the assumption and expectation of the resurrection. Uh, there is no... Uh, there's no sense in which they, they were, there, were any, there was any waffling among the New Testament authors about whether or not Jesus was actually resurrected. They wrote it because he was resurrected. Um, 
Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? Isn't it interesting? If you know 1 Corinthians, there's all sorts of crazy moral things going on. Somebody's, uh, they've got factions. I follow Apollos. I follow Paul. They have uh, disagreements about how to do worship. They've got a guy sleeping with his stepmother. Paul addresses all these things, but he leaves the most important for last. How can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we've testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And here's the kicker. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. There is no salvation without resurrection. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. That is, if they died believing in Jesus, they're still dead. If in Christ we have, we have hope in this life only, then we of all people are most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He's the first fruits, meaning uh, he has been raised from the dead and we will be raised with him. We will be in the cornucopia of his faithful. Uh, he is the first and we will be after that because we are in Christ. But if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Um, all of this. I mean, there are lots of other things, lots of other ways uh, that don't mess up your Sunday morning uh, that you can still learn to be a good person. There are a lot of nice people that don't believe in resurrection. But it is the resurrection that is the linchpin for everything else we do. So that's that, folks. Any, any uh, parting shots or closing comments? Thank God for resurrection. John, last one. Yeah, so we'll, we will, I did not talk about Isaiah 53, which is, uh, really talks about the passion. We're, we will hit that pretty hard in, in Lent uh, for um, Good Friday particularly. But yeah, Isaiah 53, I mean, it just blows me away. Every time I read it, it was written 700 years before Jesus, and yet it is, it is the gospel story. Yeah. All right, friends, if you have not been to church, go to church. Or come to church.